Please be seated. And if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, hear now the word of the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. Living and active. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, make it come alive to us in our hearts and minds as we seek to understand, as we seek to serve, as we seek to be submissive to our King. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So many of you may not be aware, but I have not always been a Reformed Presbyterian. Now, it has been a while, but it was a while ago. I was in my mid-twenties, which for you young people, yes, was in the past century. I was in my mid-twenties, and uh, one of the professors from Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary, uh, who made a, a very good and profound impact in my life at that time, uh, and as I was kind of seeking where God would have me and what, what branch of his visible church I would be in, and I was, I was exploring, and I'd just come across in the, the Reformed Presbyterian Church, and in a probing question, not a trick question, but he's like, Kelly, tell me, what do you think makes us different? What is the distinction of the Reformed Presbyterian church. So I bit, 
I said, okay, to sing psalms exclusively. He says, that's not correct, Kelly. That's a practice. And if you go back historically, most churches had that practice. In fact, if you're really a trivia person, I was watching the African Queen, and Humphrey Bogart gets mad, and he calls um, his, his co-star, uh, Catherine Hepburn, thank you, a psalm-singing biddy. She was a Methodist missionary in Africa. Okay, trivia lesson over. His point was, that is our practice. And he pressed me a little bit further. And he said, if you really want to go historically into our roots, you'll understand that our distinctive is the mediatorial kingship of Christ. And how we understand Christ as king and reigning now. Psalm 2 just shouts this at us. And so I'm, I'm hoping as we go through Psalm 2, we'll not only see Christ is king, Christ is reigning. And, you know, when we come to Psalm 2, Psalm 2 is one of those specific, you know, ones that we go to in the Old Testament or into the, the Psalms as being the ones messianic, you know, along with like Psalm 110, where it's just, it's, it becomes very clear. We like, you know, we see Jesus in all the Psalms, yes, but there's a handful that it just shouts at you about the Messiah and about God's anointed. And Psalm 2 is one of these. And it's one of those, you might say, bumper sticker type of phrases that we hear. Jesus is king. But my challenge to you as we go through this, and, and it's been one of the things challenging me, and even though I you know, came across this concept of this doctrine like 40-some years ago that I'm still pondering in my brain and in my head as how we apply this and how we come to live this out in our daily lives. Because I believe, as we'll come to, to a little bit later, it's, it's a teaching that really is transformative. As we come to it, just a little bit more prefatory. Psalm 2 is kind of broken down to us nicely. Twelve verses long. It's really broken down even in the, 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 the writing here, into th three verses each. So we'll be looking at them in that, that sort of a way. And it's a, a, a twofold, you might say, interpretation of the psalm. Obviously, when it was written, it was in reference to David himself as king. He was God's anointed. And perhaps he was having trouble with vassals at the time who didn't want to pay homage Regardless, though, under the power of the Holy Spirit and inspiration, as the psalm develops, it's very clear that the character goes well beyond David to a future anointed one of the Lord, who is the Lord himself, Jesus Christ. And we'll come to that. It will become abundantly clear 
in the New Testament in some of the passage that we'll look at. But as we come to the psalm, I'd like you to look at the first part, and I'll help you fill these in, all right, verses 1 through 3. And we're going to look at it being a matter of authority. You know, one of my favorite philosophers, some people may not think, see him as a philosopher, but I do. He had a lot of great things to say. Will Rogers. Will Rogers, Oklahoman, also from the last century, but he died in that century. Part politician, part movie star, part just giving out good sayings. Some of my favorite quotes from Will Rogers, it's a whole lot easier letting the cat out of the bag than putting him back in. Point. Don't start trouble you can't finish. He was also a financial advisor. Best way to double your money? Fold it and put it back in your pocket. <laughs> Point, just because you have a dollar doesn't mean you have to spend it or blow it on something foolish. The man who never makes a mistake sure must get tired of doing nothing. You want me to say that again? I don't know if you got that one. The point, mistakes happen. Sometimes you just have to get things done. When you start thinking you're someone important, try ordering somebody else's dog around. The point, if you don't have the authority to do something, don't try it. It doesn't make sense. And that's the question, and that's what's asked here in these first three verses. Why do nations rage? Why do peoples plot in vain, and the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us? This first word, why, sets the tone. And, and it sets also who they're really coming against. They're coming against the Lord, which is perplexing enough that they would plot against God. There is no fear of the Lord whatsoever found in these kings of the earth. And it, it's not just against the Lord, but it's against his anointed that they are coming against. And, and this is important, and especially as, as David, you might think, as the king writing this. Remember David being hunted by Saul. Saul clearly made himself an enemy to David. And God had also anointed David. But when David had the opportunity to kill Saul, he left him alone. And why did he leave him alone? He says in 2 Samuel, The Lord forbid that I put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. David understood fighting against the Lord's anointed is really fighting against God. 
And why would these people do this? And it, it's a vain thing. In Ecclesiastes, we hear about and read about a vain thing is doing something that's useless. It doesn't have any purpose. It doesn't have any meaning. It's foolish because it's impossible to accomplish. So again, why are these people plotting against God? Is there a reason? Has God shown himself to be cruel in some way? Has God shown himself to be unjust? No, God is, has repeatedly shown himself to be trustworthy, faithful, and merciful. Is there some benefit to these people of plotting against God? Will it make them more powerful? Will it make them more rich or more famous? No. But they are going to be against the Lord and his anointed. You ever come across people who don't know what they're for, but they know what they're against? And that's the kind of sense. There's no rational, logical reason for these people to plot together against God and his anointed. It's a vain thing. It makes no sense. But remember, Satan in the garden, he wasn't for Eve. He was against God. You can be like him. You can be the captain of your ship. You can determine your destiny. And so we see the sin which began with Eve and repeats itself over and over the sin of pride, the sin of arrogance, the sin really of idolatry. And this arrogance is an infection. It's a cancer that destroys. And, and we can't just pick on Eve and we can't pick on just these kings that we're talking about in Psalm 2 who are Use, uselessly plotting against God because it is a very prominent infection in our own day here in the United States. You ever run into a Christian who vehemently wants to argue that God didn't choose them, but they chose God? They'll even piously tell you it's a sign that God loves them. Now, I'm not going to go into predestination or anything that, but my point is this. Why we, must we insist and sometimes demand that we are independent from God? And that somehow that's a good thing that benefits us. But when we become persuaded of this, whether we realize it or not, we're rebelling against God in our actions. And again, before we get too smug, even against those of perhaps a different theological persuasion, I think we have to particularly guard ourselves against this sin of pride, this sin of arrogance, this sin of idolatry, of setting ourselves up as our own masters and destiny. Remember 
what we celebrate, perhaps one of our largest celebrations of the year in our country is Independence Day. Sorry to take so many illustrations from another century, but, <laughs> but some of you perhaps heard the, the, the name Frank Sinatra. Very famous, uh, well-known in certain things. In the twilight years of his career, though, there became a song that he sang repeatedly that personified his view of life. And I believe it became so popular because it resonated with millions others. Here's the words of it. Regrets, I've had a few, but the, then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do, and I saw it through without exemption. I planned each chartered course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. For what is man? What has he got? If not himself, then he is not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and I did it my way. Yes, it was my way. That subtle but pervasive message ringing in our society, ringing in our culture, is something we as believers and who intentionally bend the knee to Jesus Christ need to be ever conscious and aware of. For there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. The heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Why, O oh king, would you plot against God, against his anointed? It is a matter of authority, and all authority belongs to God. Abraham Kuyper had the famous quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. If you start from a wrong premise, you will end with the wrong conclusion. We must start with the premise that God has authority over all segments of our life and all means all the next three verses come and I will suggest this not only in one is it a matter of authority but two it's a matter of position he who sits in the heavens laughs the Lord holds them in derision then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
this idea of position is stating that authority is endowed because a position is now granted. Many of you know I have military background. So it's very common, you know, to run across people of a similar rank. But just because you had a similar rank did not mean you had a similar authority. It was a matter of position that would also often give you the authority. I was a chaplain. Chaplains have no authority. My mom, growing up, stood all of maybe 5'5", five, five, 100, 105 pounds, had three older brothers. We all physically were bigger, stronger. But sometimes my mom would say, tell us to do something. We'd say, why? And she would say, because I'm your mother, that's why. Oh, can't argue with that. Okay. Whether she realized it or not, she was given a position simply by being mother of authority. And we were doing well to respect that, or else we would find to respect it from my father. The centurion in the New Testament in Luke 7 understood this concept of positional authority. When he said, say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and in turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. He's like, he understands positional authority. The position God has is that in heaven. He sits in heaven. And notice it's, it's these, these kings of earth are plotting against him. And it's not saying, oh, God's, uh, you know, kind of pacing back and forth, wringing his hands like, oh, what am I going to do now? As if he's actually threatened in any sense. He sits in the heavens and laughs. And his, his laugh is, is, is a derisive laugh. It's a puzzled laugh and a frustrated laugh. Because as Psalm 24 tells us, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God is the creator, the sustainer of all life. He, he's not just as, as they would have had back in, in those ancient times. They had a multiplicity of gods, and they prayed to multiplicity of gods. We've got the God of the harvest. We've got the God of the, the plains, the God of the mountains, the God of the sea. And, and no, God is God of all. And he laughs when these people foolishly are plotting such things. Because it's, it's completely without any concept of reality. You know, sometimes I've, 
I've seen um, little toy cars where kids can actually get in and drive around. They're battery operated or maybe they're just pedal or something like that. And, uh, you know, they, they do that and they, they drive around in the driveway and it's like, oh, isn't that cute? You know, kids are out there thinking they're driving. But what would happen if now that, that, that three-year-old or four-year-old says, no, I can drive, and takes it out of the driveway down the road, and down the road a little ways, and then going his three miles an hour decides, I'm going to get on the interstate. And it's kind of that sort of thing. It's, it's kind of funny to think about, but if we actually see it happen, we understand how foolish and how dangerous that is. And so there's an element to it because it says here the, the, in, in the Lord holds them in derision and speaks to them in wrath. Because if it actually happened, wouldn't you want to go find that parent almost in anger and say, what do you think you're doing letting your child do this? You're putting his life in danger as well as other people's. And the thing is, not only does he rule, but because of his position, he is able to declare consequences and judgments in this wrong thinking. We also see at the last part of these three verses, in verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So we see that not only God has, it's a matter of authority that he has over all things, and a matter of his position, but we also see this starting to transition. God is also active in establishing the reign of his anointed. His authority and his position allow them, him, excuse me, to establish who he wants as king. And so now we go to the next three verses in verses 7, 8, and 9. Where I would say this is now a matter of appointment. So God is established as one as all authority. He's setting his king on Zion. And this is where it becomes very specifically speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. When it says, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We've been hearing a lot of really just terrific messages out of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read just a little bit from there. In Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23, um, it says this, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them, 
And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God, saying, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, and who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the nations rage, or why did the Gentiles rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So you see right there, they're quoting from Psalm 2 in Acts 4. And they're talking about what Jesus has done. So the New Testament inspired authors of scripture directly tell us that Psalm 2, the anointed one, the one that God sets as king on Zion, is the Lord Jesus Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is part of where I was telling you that this passage, this Psalm 2, is a transformative passage because these believers saw Psalm 2 and how did it transform their lives? By understanding and it being very vivid that this Jesus Christ died, raised again, is the one the Lord anointed. He is king of the universe. Gave them boldness to speak. It gave them power that they otherwise wouldn't have had. And it was by this confession in which the Holy Spirit sustained them and gave them, them strength. Also, here in, in uh, Psalm 2, it refers to, You are my son. Hebrews chapter 1, also quoting that, refers specifically to Jesus being the one established in Psalm 2. And this is why the Apostle Paul could write, And being found in human form, he humbled himself, that's Jesus, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So many other passages throughout the New Testament speak to Jesus Christ as the anointed one, as the one to whom God has given all authority. Before he ascended, even Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In Acts chapter 10, Peter said, And he commanded us to preach to the people 
and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And we then see it also with, with the Apostle Paul in Acts 17. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When Jesus Christ raised from the dead and then appeared to the apostles and appeared to the disciples and declared himself as the one who fulfilled the, the teachings of, of the Old Testament as the appointed one, the Messiah, the Christ who was to come, who now is reigning, it transformed them. That became their driving force. That became their motivation. It was not to build their own kingdoms on earth, but as he taught us to pray, your kingdom come. How is it going to be done except through his disciples and those who have pledged their allegiance to him? So Psalm 2 speaks to a matter of authority, a matter of position, a matter of appointment, and in the last three verses, a matter of wisdom. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You come to this understanding of Jesus Christ his authority his position his appointment be wise people be warned Serve the Lord with fear. <clears throat> Hebrews tells us, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, 
and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Be wise. Be warned. Serve the Lord in fear. Like the centurion and the apostles, when we grasp the authority and rule of Jesus, it will start to change the way we think, the way we act, the way we behave. It will motivate us to, as James would say, apply works to our faith. The Apostle Paul says we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. How? Taking every thought captive to obey Christ. I go back into some of the historical references we have. And it is motivating and inspiring for when the early covenanters, well before they were known as Reformed Presbyterians, were stubbornly and staunchly standing on this premise that Jesus was their king and they would bend no knee to any sovereign except the Lord Jesus. That gave them strength to withstand under persecution because it came and it may come to us. What will keep us from wilting and bending and conforming to the world if not a stubborn and staunch and resolute understanding that Jesus is my king and under all circumstances I must be a faithful subject to the king for my citizenship is in heaven You know, this is kind of difficult again. Because in our history, we really don't like kings. Kings, in the back of our mind, represent tyrants who impose their will on us that we don't like. I mean, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary to rebel. We almost take out our banner of pride. We need to find that banner of submission. That when the persecutions come, 
that the banner that we're waving is the one of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, yes, suffered, bled, and died, but was raised again. And who does reign, not in the future, now, on his throne. Now, to those who rebel, that's, that's not a, a very good message. To those who say, no, I really, really like to do things my way, it's really not a very good message. But it's kind of interesting, after Psalm 2 goes through all of these really pretty straightforward and, and direct statements, I'm not going to say it ends in a whimper, but it ends with a very just matter of fact. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. My brothers and sisters, let us take refuge in our King Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are so many times that we would like to be wise in our own eyes and how in essence it turns out being just foolishness. Lord, impress upon our minds your authority, your position, your appointment, and work in our hearts to be wise, to fear the Lord, to run to you as our refuge, as we bend our knee to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.